Well, this morning, we're going to be back in the book of Colossians, and back in Colossians chapter 1. So if you've got your words, you can begin turning there. Um, Last week, we looked at the first part of Colossians chapter 1, and where Paul was talking to the church at Colossae and sharing with them and what he sees about them and what he is praying for them about. And at the end of that particular passage, or at the end of where we stopped, what you see is Paul talking about the beginnings of who Christ is. And in verse 14, he talked about, in him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And in referring to Jesus Christ. And this morning, we're going to look at the, the rest of this particular passage that lays out the character and nature of Jesus Christ. So that when we get to the place of taking the Lord's Supper together, we have reflected faithfully on the character of Christ who we celebrate. There are several passages in Scripture that point directly to who Jesus is and describe his character, nature, and work. And this is one of those that we could literally just read it and I could close the word and say, go reflect on that and we would be overwhelmed in our minds by the work of Christ. There are a couple other passages as well that if you want to refer back to them this week as you're reflecting on the character of Christ, John chapter 1 would be another one. Hebrews chapter 1, the first few verses there, and then Philippians chapter 2, those would be great places to start to reflect on the character of God, of Christ. And so let's begin by reading these first verses here, beginning in verse 15, we'll read through 20, and then we'll come back and walk through them together. It says this, he is the image of of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and by him all things hold together. He's also the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. There's so much in here we could walk through. And so let's begin to just take pieces and begin to see what this really says about the character of Christ. In verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God. Jesus himself said, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, it talks about how Jesus is the radiance of God's glory and that he is the representation of all of God's being. Right, this talking about the image of God here, the image of the invisible God, this is the perfect image, the complete image. Right, if you have seen Christ, you have seen God. Because scripture tells us in John chapter 1, he was with God in the beginning and the word was God. And John goes on to talk about how Jesus is the word. Now, Scripture talks about also that we were created in God's image, that we are image bearers of the Lord, but there is a big difference between Christ as the image of the invisible God and us as imperfect image bearers. Do not confuse those two things. Because Christ is the perfect representation of God's being. And so when we see him, we've seen God. 
What's it say? He's the firstborn over all creation. So what we need to look at here is understanding that this is not speaking to birth order or beginning. This is not saying God created Jesus at some point in time and then Jesus went and did all these great things. This is talking to about position and authority. Because firstborn in this culture, in that day and time, firstborn was the one that had all authority within the family because everything was going to pass to the firstborn. So this verse is not about Jesus having a beginning point. It's about everything being under the authority of Christ. As the firstborn over all creation. And it goes on to say, For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Begin to think about that. Everything was created by him, right? Everything was created by Christ. Hebrews 1 goes back to speak to it. It says, through whom God made everything. Jesus was the one through which creation was done. And it talks about the things in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible. If you and I think about the things that are visible and invisible, and we begin to think about what God, what has been made through Christ, think about it. So what we can see now that's visible, the vast majority of human history would have been invisible. Think about it. So our technology, our technology allows us to see inside the human body in a unique way, doesn't it? The more and more we discover about the human body and they go smaller and smaller and smaller, what are they finding? More and more intricacy and detail and order and purpose. What most of human history had no idea was in our makeup, we now have the ability to see parts of it and go, it's always been there. It was just considered invisible to the rest of the world because they had no idea, didn't have the ability to see it. But now we have the ability to see the intricacies that all of that is held together through Christ. And he made every bit of it. This summer I've had the opportunity to stand in very contrasting places at different points. One time I was able to stand on the beach and look out at the ocean and see and just picture the authority of Christ that every wave in its strength stays in its place. And he holds every one of them. And at another time I've had the opportunity to stand between two mountains at a mountain pass looking down into the valley and seeing all that has been made on one side, turning and looking behind me and seeing all that was made behind me, looking at the peaks beside me and being able to go look at the majesty of the Creator. And He's made every bit of this. The visible of what we see on our earth and what we know and yet there's so much here that we have yet to discover. But it was no surprise to Christ. He made every bit of it. So for us to get a, a little glimpse, I want to give you an illustration that gives us a glimpse of what all Christ has made. So this is something I heard several years ago. Um, you've heard, some of you may have heard me talk about it before, but I think it helps us really hone in on what it means that Christ has made everything. So we talked about looking at the earth, but then you get beyond the earth and you begin to look towards the heavens and begin to look towards the sky and look at our solar system and look at everything that's been made um, and you begin to see the order of Christ and what he's done. I left part of my illustration down here, so I'm going to grab it real quick. But this reality that if you think about the sun, 
And compared to the earth, the core of the sun is estimated at 27 million degrees. I think that's a little warmer than our 100 degrees that we're going to experience today. You need a little more than sunblock. 27 million degrees at its core. This is a violent place of heat and explosions like we can never even imagine, and yet it's held in its place. You know that in our solar system, the sun makes up 99.8% of all the mass of our solar system. Jupiter makes up most of the rest of the other 0.2%. You could fit 960,000 Earths inside the sun. 960,000. Let me give you a little bit of an image. If the Earth were a golf ball, the sun would extend 15 feet out in front of me and all around. That 960,000 golf balls is enough golf balls to fill an entire school bus with golf balls. So we could call Georgetown ISD, pull a bus out here and fill it up with golf balls and say that's what the comparison would be to our sun. But the reality is our sun is actually a, an average size star. So when, what the technology has given us the ability now is to see further and further and further out. And as you can see on what's being played up there and is kind of looping for you to be able to see is that our sun doesn't even compare to the stars that we can now see. So as small as we are on our little golf ball compared to the sun, one of my favorites, uh, just because of its name, is Betelgeuse. It's one of my favorite stars is Betelgeuse. Now, Betelgeuse is twice the size of the Earth's orbit around the sun. So you take our orbit around the sun, and you have to double it just to get the size of Betelgeuse. If the Earth were a golf ball, you'd have to get on a plane, fly to New York City, Take your golf ball, put it at the bottom of the Empire State Building, go up to the top, try to look out and see if you can see your golf ball, then turn your head and look up and try to imagine five more Empire State Buildings on top of that and being at the top of that and looking down and finding your golf ball. Because if the earth were a golf ball, Betelgeuse would be the height of six Empire State Buildings stacked on top of one another. You could fit 262 trillion earths inside of Betelgeuse. 262 trillion. And that sucker's been out there spinning, created by Christ, and we had no idea till recently. That's enough golf balls to fill up the Superdome 3,000 times. But Betelgeuse isn't the biggest. The big boy gets a name like a big boy. They call him Canis Majoris. I mean, it just sounds like a Roman general, right? Canis Majoris. It's this massive star. If the earth were a golf ball, you'd have to fly to Nepal. Put your golf ball at the very base, not base camp, the very base of Mount Everest and look to the very top. Because Canis, if the earth were a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of of Mount Everest. You can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. Seven quadrillion, that just sounds like a word my kids made up. Like a bazillion. Seven quadrillion. So we have to get some context to that because I definitely don't have context over a quadrillion. 
So um, one million seconds ago is 12 days ago. One billion seconds ago, 1994. One trillion seconds ago, 29,700 BC. One quadrillion seconds ago, 30,800,000 BC. Now multiply that by seven, and you've got how many of these things you can fit seven quadrillion Earths inside Canis Majoris. Right? You get a little bit of an image here of what Christ has made and what he's holding together. So here's the deal. Here's the crazy part. As we sit here spinning on our little golf ball and say, I think I want the universe to be around me. Let's put this little guy up against Canis Majoris and see how much it's about me. It is clear how insignificant our size is in relation to all that Christ holds. For everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. Here's the reality. Those massive stars were created for him. Not a one of them was created for me, but all of them. That verse literally means by him and toward him. Like all of creation is moving toward him. It looks to him. It takes its cue from him. Everything is about him. And he is before all things and by him all things hold together. This reality that every breath I take is held in its place by his authority. So that next breath that I take, that was under the authority of Christ. And he holds it all in its place. Your heartbeat, boom, 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 boom. Every one of those held together by the authority of Christ. And there comes a day when it said, stop. And that heartbeat will stop. But everything, all of creation is held together by him. And so if it's all created by him, it's all moving toward him, it's all held together by him, I don't have much of a role in that process, do I? Verse 18, he's also the head of the body of the church. Right, this idea that, that Christ is the head of the church. The church are those who have come to believe and trust in Christ. He is the authority over the church. And another image that we get in Scripture is that the church is the bride of Christ. And so the church's role is to become a ready bride for the return of Christ. And so all that we do is under the authority and headship of Jesus Christ. People want to know why we do the things that we do within a church. We say it's because we do what is written right here because it is under the authority of Christ, not under the authority of us. Now Christ has put people into positions of leadership under local churches and has given that opportunity for us to move toward Christ and for leaders to help us move toward Christ, but it is under his headship. You want to know why we talk about love God, love people, help others do the same? Because that's exactly what Jesus talked about. What did he say? The first 
greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love people. Those are tied together. And then Jesus told his disciples to make disciples. That's where we get help others do the same. Love God, love people, help others do the same. All of it comes from here. It comes from the authority of Christ, not from my authority or any other human authority. People often want to know, why do we do the things that we do the way that we do them? Why do you do baptism the way that you do it? Not under our authority, but under biblical authority. Everything we do, we want to run back under the authority of Christ. Because he is the head of the church. So what that means is at times I put my preferences on the shelf so that the body can become the ready bride who God's intended us to be when Christ returns. Because as we've just seen in all of creation, it is not about us. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Right? Here's this image that none of us, none of us have the authority over death. There's not of one of us that are going to go into the grave and be able to say, hmm, I don't like it here. I'm done with this. I'm coming back out. Right? None of us have that ability. But Jesus went into the grave, and the grave could not hold him. It could not sustain him. And he walked out with victory over death so that he might have preeminence or be first place in everything. You know what he then does? He then says to all who believe and trust in him, death no longer has reign over you because I will raise you up with me when I return. So we don't have victory because of our own strength, but we get to live in victory because of who Christ is. And we no longer have to live in fear of the grave. Even though there may be temporary grief, there is no longer eternal grief. There is freedom because of Christ. So he gets preeminence in everything. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And that goes back to Christ being the image of Christ, the image of the invisible God, right? That goes back to verse 15. And verse 20, And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So God did a reconciling work through Christ. See, I hear that word reconcile, and, and frequently we hear the opposite of that, irreconcilable. Right? That's frequently used in divorces. People say we have irreconcilable differences. It means they believe there is no way forward for them to be able to work together. You want to know what the real, what the, what the largest irreconcilable difference in all of human history is? It's the fact that God is holy and we are not. And there is nothing that we can do to reconcile ourselves to a holy God. But what did God do? Through his son and through him, Jesus, to reconcile everything to himself, things on earth or in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. What God did, this is what's so fascinating. This little golf ball, we are correct in saying we are completely insignificant. But what God has done, somehow, for some reason, said, I'm going to take one of the most insignificant places and I'm going to do something significant and call those people significant to me because I love them. And I'm going to send my son to reconcile them to me at a time and a place where there is no way for them to do it themselves. That's one of the beauties of God's work. 
And going back to earlier in chapter 1, verse 6, when it talked about, since the day you heard it, talking about the gospel, and came to truly appreciate God's grace. As we learn to appreciate God's grace, what we realize is, in our insignificance, God chose to love us significantly so that we might have significance. And we might be with him, and we might be reconciled to him, and he did every bit of that through his son. So this whole section has talked all about Jesus Christ. He's going to give uh, us two verses now about us, and they're not going to be very flattering. Verse 21, once you were alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed in your evil actions, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. So that picture, once you are alienated and hostile in your minds, expressed through your actions. What it's saying is, we were were alienated from God and we were hostile to him. How do we know we were hostile? Because of our actions. Because what we said was, we're going to be out here spinning and I want everything to move towards me. I'm going to build my little world around me like somehow I have preeminence in all things. Like somehow I've created something significant. Like somehow I have authority over everything in front of me. That is our rebellion in our actions or to try to act like we somehow have the place in the seat that only Christ has. And the deserved punishment of that. I mean, could you imagine if you were watching that from the outside? This idea of over here in this corner, we've got God who's made everything through his son. In this corner, we've got an ant that's done nothing. Who do you think's going to win? And yet somehow, in our hostility toward God, we've decided that we want to have preeminence. We want everything to be about us and to be around us and that somehow we have created our own significance. We've alienated ourselves from God. Then verse 22, but now he has reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. Think about that. Here we are over here in our corner and because of the work of Christ to go to the cross, shed his blood, pay the penalty that you and I owe for our sin, And then he conquers the grave. He says, I am going to present you as holy, faultless, and blameless before the Lord. That word blameless literally means without accusation. Literally without accusation before the Lord. So we have different types of personalities. Some of us in here have a personality type that says, you know what, I don't really feel like I've done much wrong. Somebody tells tells me I'm sinful. I know I am, but I don't really see it. And so we have to trust, those people have to trust the Lord to reveal their brokenness before the Lord. Other people are on the other side. And they're riddled with guilt and shame and everything that they've done, they remember. And they go, if you tell me I'm presented before God faultless, I'll tell you every fault in my life because I remember every one of them. You want to tell me I'm blameless? I feel the blame and am worthy to be blamed. And here's what Jesus did. He died and paid the penalty so that we might see that when we stand before the Lord, we are holy. We are set apart. 
We are faultless and we are blameless because the Lord looks at us and sees the covering of his son and says, you are free from accusation. What a gift. What a gift. It goes on say, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. You know what Paul's response is to the character and nature of Christ? Is that I don't have any authority over my life. I will be a servant of yours because the more and more we come to appreciate the grace of God, the more we realize we've been given significance that we don't deserve and our lives have simply become about lifting up the name of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, the significance of our life changes because God has given us the ability to be a part and be involved in the greatest, most significant story in all of creation and that's his story. He has taken a broken people and redeemed us or bought us back and reconciled us to himself through his son. All of creation can look at his work there and praise God and give him glory because only he could do that. And so as we reflect on the character and nature of Christ, it ought to lead us back to a place of great humility. Because what does scripture say about the, who Christ is? When Philippians talks about the fact that therefore God has exalted him to the highest place and given him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He will get all the glory. He has given us the opportunity to be a part of it and a part of its significance. Even though in the grand scheme of things we are very, very, very small. Praise God, he sent his son. Praise God we get to celebrate that together. Praise God that in the midst of being a little speck, a little golf ball, God said, he loved us so much that he would send his only son to die for us. And that changes everything about our lives.